0: Hi, this is Chester with an editing note. I recorded this interview with Parmie Olson about Anonymous, LulzSec, and the Mobile World Congress at the end of February 2013 at the Yerba Buena Gardens in San Francisco, California. As a result, we were in a public place, and you may hear some noises in the background that I could not remove in editing, like dogs barking and things like that. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to another Sophos Podcast. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and today I'm in San Francisco, California. I've had the pleasure of meeting Parmi Olson, the author of We Are Anonymous. Welcome, Parmi. Thank you. When you were writing this book, you had the opportunity to kind of meet a lot of these people in person that were behind this uh, these attacks. And obviously, I found your book to humanize them much more than I expected in that my job is to help stop a lot of the stuff they do. And, I'm, I'm, and, I, and I generally don't agree with Anonymous' philosophy. And so I was, I was quite surprised at, at, at your style in writing this. Were you surprised in some of the stories that they shared with you? And, and do you have any favorites?
1: Well, um, I have to say that when I first started writing about Anonymous, my intention wasn't to try and put a human face on Anonymous. It was literally just to satisfy my curiosity about what this all was. Because I was reading about this new cutting edge mysterious group that was working on the internet and there wasn't very much information out there about them objective information from the mainstream press so I started doing the interviews Um, it wasn't that difficult to get hold of spokespeople where they don't like to call themselves spokespeople but people from anonymous who would talk to the press Um, and from there I could ask them to introduce me to other people within the network as far as favorite anecdotes and what I learned about them you know, that's so many ways that I could answer that question because there are so many different types of people who consider them to, themselves to be part of Anonymous. It's very easy to s- suggest that they are basement-dwelling teenage spotty men. To an extent, that's true, but there are also a lot of parents. There are people who are in middle-aged. There are women. And a lot of these types of people are not necessarily within the core uh, passionate uh area of the network these are kind of people on the fringe who are kind of associate supporters what i did find is that when i did start speaking to the people who were the impassioned supporters the ones who were really doing the organizing and who were in front of their computers for upwards of 10 hours a day or more that's when you started to notice the patterns and demographics these were young men often they were isolated geographically living in the countryside Jake Davis, who ended up being the protagonist for the book, uh, sort of the the key person who I tried to tell the story through his eyes, uh, lived in the Shetland Islands, which is as remote as you can possibly get, by himself in a, in his own little wooden chalet. He moved out from his mother's house when he was 18, and it, other people who I spoke to also were living in isolated areas in England, in the United States, and. There were also other kind of extraordinary elements to their personalities. Many of them were very intelligent, found it difficult to socialize with people in the offline world. Again, it's difficult to generalize, but when you're talking about the people who were the organizers, who who felt connected and somehow as if it was a calling for them, almost anonymous, those were the types of people generally that were doing that, those types of young men, disaffected, you could say.
0: So uh, did that um, actually result in calling it We Are Anonymous, the fact that largely the, the, the movement, if you want to call it that, was very diverse and had all these different players in it, whether maybe the the most damaging aspects were being done by a, f- a few um, that maybe fit these stereotypes, but largely it, it was a pretty diverse set of people.
1: I should say that my original idea for the title was not We Are Anonymous. It was going to be Lust for Lulls." <laughs> For whatever reason, my publisher didn't think that was a good idea. So they suggested, uh, originally it was We Are Legion, and then a documentary came out called We Are Legion, and then someone suggested We Are Anonymous, and I thought, well, that makes sense because everybody knows Anonymous. and The book itself doesn't, perhaps it doesn't tell the, a diverse overview of Anonymous. Um, it is very focused on LULSEC, which was a splinter group from Anonymous, Um, And I chose to keep it that way because, yes, it's not going to tell you the full story of what Anonymous has done, because it's very difficult to get all of that into a book. But LulzSec, I felt, exemplified what Anonymous, why it's so successful, because it isn't a big organized hierarchy. It's very nodal. It's a network of small groups. And it's when a few people find themselves within a large public chat room and find things that a common base with each other, they can become friends. They find talents that somehow interlock and dovetail. That's when they can be highly effective, and that's why LULSEC was so highly effective. They found themselves in the middle of Operation Payback, um, got together, became this elite team, started to think very highly of themselves, and caused all sorts of troubles over the summer of 2012. And we've seen a few other splinter groups that have done similar things, perhaps not to the same degree of notoriety, but definitely similar patterns have emerged since then.
0: Yeah, I, I you know one of the reasons I was fond of the book is that journalists mischaracterize what anonymous is. Uh, it's not a group. You called it a nodal network. I think that's a very good description. But your book is the first time I've read something from a journalist who seems to have actually unraveled what is truly the core idea there, whether it's Lul as the example that you may have investigated so deeply. I think it's representative of the groups that certainly that we followed in Brazil and many other places around the world. And um, people go, well, what's this anonymous thing? And I go, well, buy your book, because it's the first time I've seen somebody put words to paper that actually seem to accurately reflect what we think uh, 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 of as anonymous um, in the industry. And I also find it interesting that, you know, talking about the remoteness uh, of some of the, the primary actors and things. And it, it's I, I just felt like you're telling my story to a degree. And that, you know, I grew up on a farm in rural Michigan and was, a, uh, uh, you know, my, my parents both worked full time and were away all the time. And all I had was my computer and a modem to keep me occupied for hours on end, especially in the summertime. I couldn't go anywhere. It was 10 miles to the closest place where other people were. There were no children in my neighborhood. I had nothing to do but make online happen. And what did I want to do? I wanted to hack stuff and figure out how it all worked. And of course, when I did it, one, it wasn't a crime, and two, I didn't do anything malicious. Oh, yeah,
1: <laughs> you go, you've gone on the record as saying that, which is good.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I find it fascinating that um, I that I, I I feel sympathy for these people who caused so much damage. Now, I hear their their trial is upcoming uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, do you do you have any? Guesses as to how that's going to play out. I mean, here in the United States, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is extremely strict, and you get you can get crazy penalties sometimes for seemingly innocent things. And yet, the crimes that these gentlemen are accused of are quite serious. Um, is there any expectation? Is there any um, any kind of buzz about what the the, the community wants and, uh, uh, as a result of this?
1: Well, I think there's uh, a big question mark over what their sentences will be, and. The problem for a lot of these guys is that because they're on the front line of this kind of activity, this is all very new, particularly for the legal system, they don't really know how to deal with this kind of thing. How do you gather evidence on this? How do you get a chat, you know, 150,000 pages of chat logs and use that as evidence? How do you weigh up what's actually Worth prioritizing as real evidence against something. And think about what these guys actually say in chat rooms. It's a thought that comes into their head and it immediately translates into moving their fingers. Half the time, they don't care about what they're saying and they don't mean what they're saying. But then it's read out in a courtroom by a prosecutor and suddenly it sounds very malicious. And it's very easy to paint the picture of a Machiavellian, uh, sinister group of people when actually it was just an element of circumstances bringing them together. And as you were saying with your own example, um, people just attracted to a community where they can learn and you know, fraternize. As for the trial that's coming up in the UK, yeah, again, big question mark over sentencing and what's going to happen to Hector, Mon- Hector Monsegor, who went by the nickname Sabu online and who ended up being an FBI informant for eight months, possibly longer. His sentencing has been postponed. I'm guessing because the FBI still find him quite useful, although I don't know that for sure. That's pure speculation. The question is, Mark, over whether he will actually be flown over to London to testify at the trial of the LulzSec hackers. Two uh, young men were recently sentenced in the U.K. for getting involved in the Operation Payback attacks at the end of 2010. um, They were uh, network uh, operators for the chat network. What they did, perhaps, just on the face of it, does not seem to be as serious as what the guys in Lulsec did, um, and they got sentences of 18 months. Uh, one, the, the longest sentence was 18 months, and the other one was, I think, about 8 months to a year, or something like that. So we could be looking at sentences that are about that long. And yes, I mean, who knows if the same kind of crime or act took place 10 years from now? Would the people 10 years from now get those kind of sentences? I don't know, but in one way, these four young men who are going to be on trial in the UK in April of this year are almost like sacrificial lambs in a way Um, not to kind of put try and put a sympathetic face on it but really they are the first ones to have to trial this new kind of way of penalizing people who've done these kinds of acts and perhaps the government and prosecutors will want to come down extra hard to sort of you know make a statement about this kind of crime because not only is it just stealing things or not only is it just acts of sabotage, but there's a real element of tearing at the social fabric. Last year in London, we had uh, these riots by a lot of young people. The London riots, I can't remember what month that was. It was in the summer. And as a result of that, the government really cracked down hard on anyone who was arrested and gave particularly tough um, sentences to those people. And there might be a similar kind of element at play with the trial that comes up for the Lulsec hackers.
0: You bring up some really interesting points. I actually met my wife on IRC, and I was just envisioning. I'm really glad the logs from when I first started chatting with my wife on IRC in the, in the mid 90s are not available to any courts nor to ourselves. <laughs> but um,
1: I was thinking you would hope that, that you still had them. To you don't want to look back on that.
0: <laughs> no, no. I th- you know, it, I've, I've matured a bit over the years, and and. and uh, yeah, no, I I don't think I want to look back on that. <laughs> the, the things you say on IRC are often regrettable, and 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 it is weird to consider that being part of the court record. And you know, this isn't the first time we've had to face these kinds of problems. Actually, at the uh, conference here that, that I'm attending. I was talking about ransomware which is a big problem these days and Dr. Joseph Pop who is an American wrote the first known ransomware for the PC in 1989 and was extradited to the United Kingdom for trial and the prosecutors were facing the same kinds of challenges going well you know what do we call this is it blackmail is it this is it that what we don't know how to cope with this the legal system isn't prepared to deal with this problem and it turns out Dr. Pop was crazy and came to to court with a cardboard box on his head each day until the court uh, declared him a public disgrace and deported him back to the United States, so that kind of solved the dilemma temporarily. <laughs> um, but uh, and he went on to f- um, to found a butterfly conservatory in in upstate New York. So,
1: quite a cute little ending to that.
0: Yeah, but uh, what was striking me was the kind of you're separating their punishment from. I guess, what's already well-established punishment, which is the cyber criminals who are literally robbing our moms and dads and grannies. And this is a very different act, isn't it? I mean, it, it's, a, it's a different sort of crime than simply, I'm going to put something on your computer and trick you into paying $49. Right. And
1: I'm, I'm sure you've said this many times as well, that the real threats to cybersecurity aren't really even so much people in anonymous. It's the cyber criminals you never hear about, the kind of Paradox for the Anans, as they call themselves, who got arrested, is that they don't often do it for money. They do it for notoriety. They do it because their community, they get caught up in the euphoria of things. They feel that the press is watching them. They want to do the next big hack. They want to get lots of followers on Twitter. I mean, these all sound like very superficial things, but in the moment, when you're in front of a computer by yourself for days on end, those sorts of things start to feel really important. And so they. They do those sorts of acts for those reasons. And yeah, I mean, the real, as you say, the real crimes are actually being carried out involving much bigger amounts of money by cyber criminals. And we don't hear about those very often.
0: Well, it's partly the difference between direct and indirect costs as well, I think, to a degree. I mean, it's easy to understand the impact of tricking someone into buying fake antivirus for $120 versus what is the impact of a DDoS attack? What is the real harm there? How does that work? Would you say, I mean, it almost sounds like you're saying that lulls are currency in their system. Is that is that a fair, uh, a fair comment?
1: A kind of social currency? Yeah, sure. I would say so. And It's all very kind of short term because you might have a certain amount of social currency from doing a great big kind of hack or some sort of prank online and everybody in the community appreciates it. And then, oh, actually, three months later, you better change your nickname because that's what people tend to do, change their nicknames or use different nicknames. And so it doesn't even last that long. So it's a very kind of short term burst of, you know, of of uh, benefit that they get
0: sounds a lot like high school uh. <laughs> that's
1: a great analogy it is very much like high school yes
0: well, uh, being that you're a writer with Forbes, um you're you're doing a lot of work in the mobile area now uh, aside from your research into anonymous and actually I'll pimp your stuff at the end. But uh you know, you were just at the Mobile World Congress in in Barcelona and uh what what what's exciting? I mean, we're all mobile geeks to a degree. We've all got usually at least one if not multiple phones. So what's what's new and exciting on the horizon in mobile technology?
1: Usually when you go to Mobile World Congress, it's people find it difficult to choose a theme or kind of a new direction, everything happens very gradually. A couple of things that I can pinpoint though are the carriers or the mobile operators like AT&T, Verizon, Vodafone, they're trying very hard to be smart now because they're increasingly being seen as so-called dump pipes, just a utility that provides connectivity to the phone. People care much more about Apple and the iPhone, or Samsung and Android, than they do about who their network provider is, particularly in Europe, perhaps not so much in the United States. And so carriers are trying to find out ways that they can make more money, interact more with their with their customers. Interestingly, a couple of ways they're doing that: working with car makers. AT&T signed a deal with GM to put connectivity into the car. Which questionable how well that will work out. Ford has done a deal with Spotify and other internet companies and services so that you your smartphone becomes the wireless hub in the car that the wireless connectivity isn't in the car so there's a big debate should it be in the car or should it just be the smartphone that is the hub another interesting again segging from carriers to operating systems uh, several open source operating systems for mobile coming out this year and next tizen uh, collaboration of samsung and intel and firefox os from mozilla There was a really surprisingly high amount of interest in Mozilla. i got to say, their booth was probably the busiest out of all of MWC because of Firefox OS. There were tons of people wanting demonstrations, and the, the booth attendants were just kind of completely knackered. And I spoke to Mitchell Baker, who's the chairwoman of Mozilla. She's a fascinating person and really sees a kind of social mandate for putting this out. She believes that the mobile web should be open to everybody, that closed ecosystems are bad for innovation, that when you have platform based on html5 there's eight million developers out there who can write an html5 which vastly increases the amount of possibilities for the types of services that can be put onto a phone going back to carriers the nice thing about this is now they don't have apple or what you call a mobile ecosystem kind of blocking their relationship with computer with consumers like android or ios so now because of firefox os kind of open source platform they can put their services onto a phone they can put this, I see you cringe there which is actually um interesting interestingly enough the carriers are promoting this so much at MWC but the reaction from my readers when i write about this and people that i speak to is really are they the people we want to be innovating on the phone or is it the kind of lean and hungry startups in silicon valley who Who should be providing those services? So it'll be really interesting to see how Firefox OS comes out. They're hoping to ship millions of phones this year, and they're targeting emerging markets.
0: I I wish them luck. Just simply uh, that a lot of former Softus employees who've uh, decided to to reach for new opportunities have gone to Mozilla. They've got a large office in Vancouver where I'm based, and I know a lot of folks at Mozilla and and folks on their security team. And in fact. um, uh, one of the organizers of our first B-Sides event, Security B-Sides in Vancouver, is uh, is a employee at Mozilla. So I wish them luck. I hope it works out well. I'm, I'm looking forward to having a chance to get another mobile device <laughs> to play with this stuff. Now, your paperback edition's coming out in the U.S. soon, and you're hoping to finally release your book in the U.K. Do you, do you have any uh, dates or information to share with our listeners that may be interested in reading We Are Anonymous?
1: Yeah, sure. The paperback comes out this year. I'm actually not sure on exactly the date, but it's going to be around June, so the summer. Uh, the U.K. edition, which finally coming out, we were unable to publish because of uh, laws around contempt of court and prejudicing any trial. Pretty much as soon as the trial is over, we're going to start printing and we're last-minute editing, printing, and so perhaps around uh, June uh, as well. I think both in the U.K. And, and in the U.S. we'll have editions coming out. And the U.S. edition will have an epilogue in which I've interviewed Jake Davis and uh, Reynaldo Rivera and um, one other lulsec hacker, in Europe, a former LulzSec hacker, uh, just asking what it's been like for them one year since the book was written and just how their lives have changed. So that's a little bit of extra information that's coming out in the paperback in the U.S.
0: Well, as a U.K. company, we've been holding off on publishing a review on Naked Security until... uh, the everything's unclear when, in this international world that we live in so we we've been holding off on on, on writing a review until um it is published in the uk so uh, our our readers can look forward to that and i really appreciate you spending so much time with me today here um i'm, I'm a big fan of the book and not just because i'm in it i really think it's great and i, I recommend people uh, recommend people read it so thank for joining us
1: thank you very much